Um, regrettably, we didn't get to see much of um, the dissenters' case yesterday. So I suppose we, we do need to, to focus on the prosecution's case. The little that we did see of the uh, dissenters' case was um, was just a, a, an outline, as I, as I understood it, of, of what we're to, to expect today, um, <clears throat> where I now expect that uh, he, uh, Barry Rue, is going to be making more of possible contamination of, of the scene. My understanding is that he's also going to attempt to construct um, timelines which would show somehow that um, the, the state's version cannot be true. And I'm looking forward to that because um, I must say that the, the relative times at which people heard calls hasn't been so significant for me. So, <laughs> Murder doesn't require that you kill somebody at uh, 3.17. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's still murder if you kill them at 3.18 or at 3.16. So so that's going to be interesting from from my perspective. But then looking at what Noel had to to say, um, I think he went for the jugular when he opened by saying, you know, he's effectively, uh, Mr. Pistorius, uh, raised four four different defenses. There's the original defense of putative private defense, where, you, where you're conceding that you um, weren't entitled to act in self-defense, but you mistakenly acted in self-defense. Um, and nevertheless, then, throughout your testimony and throughout the, the, the proceedings in the trial, finally uh, ending with uh, the, the testimony of Professor Derman, you shifted your defense. Um, you shifted it in your very own testimony to a claim to involuntariness, which is, in layman's speak, just to have effectively been absent from the scene, to have lost all control. Um, examples of a person in a state of involuntariness is a person who's asleep or has been not knocked unconscious. Um, and, that, and that we saw when he started uh, saying that he gun had just gone off. Uh, in his hands, for mm. instance. Um, and then he switched to what we now well know, the, uh, or this might be deliberate or not, um, that the defense of insanity, which is non-pathological criminal incapacity for which he was referred um, for the 90 days, sorry, sorry, for the 30 days, then referred, then, then brought back to court, and then in Professor Derman's um, testimony pursued again with the notion of um, non-pathological criminal incapacity. So it would still be a similar basis to the insanity defense that he raised under pathological incapacity, except that on this occasion he was now arguing that his incapacity arose out of no pathology whatsoever. This is what we know in criminal law. Uh, probably it's a misnomer and it's not a great label, but it's the temporary insanity defense. So you've got a variety of defenses here. And it hasn't been clear until this point, and it's uh, mm. which defense uh, they're going to go with. And, and it's fundamental. Why would an accused person be so unclear on what it is that their defense is? That in itself is damning. And what, in your view, was the most powerful piece of evidence uh, presented in this trial and also the most damaging? For me, I've always been stuck, for what it's worth, on the testimony about the uh, with the, about the neighbors who heard a woman scream followed by shots. Now, you can, as, as Rue did, um, attack that evidence and raise doubts 
even reasonable doubt about that evidence, they might have been mistaken. Their time frames, frames might be slightly off. But our law operates in a way where it takes the combined uh, effect of all of that evidence together, together with other circumstantial evidence, um, in order to make its decision. You will have heard yesterday now talking about um, a mosaic that is pictured, that, that that is painted by or created by reliance on circumstantial evidence. And that's exactly what's, what we're looking at here. If, if we had one witness saying they heard a, a woman, what they think is a woman screaming in the middle of the night, nobody else heard it, then it's probably not going to carry much weight. But then we have four independent parties claiming that they heard a woman scream at night, followed by shots. Now that carries a tremendous amount of weight. And it's, and it's not gainsaid. It's not, um, it, it, it's not set aside by, uh, by the, the, the defense leading with evidence of witnesses who were closer to the scene. All they can say is they didn't hear it. It doesn't prove that there were no screams. On the other hand, when you have witnesses who say that they did hear a woman scream, that does disprove that there were no screams. And that, for me, has been fundamental. And obviously, if you were uh, the judge, uh, you know, sitting, hearing all of this evidence, what would your judgment possibly have been at this point? (laughs) I was asked... I have to be so careful because I was just misprinted in the Telegraph where I was very, very careful to try and explain that I, I, I was then and I remain undecided because I want to see and hear all of the evidence again. Um, but I, mean, I, I am prepared to say that I'm leaning towards the fact that uh, Oscar is the, 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 the chances of a court recognizing uh, any reasonable doubts in Oscar's favor are probably fading. Um, and it, it, it's entirely possible that the court might find him guilty on the evidence presented.